Stay with us following this week's Crosswalk for information on Pastor Clay's new book, I Get It, discovering how to really live in the promises of God. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Where do we find hope that's not just for a season or not just for a temporary period of time, but how do we live in it? How do we live in this continual abiding hope? Hope. How do you live in it when everything around you seems hopeless? Is it even possible? Where would you even begin to look for hope in this world? Have you been in the world lately? Have you had the message? Do you struggle with finances? Do you have kid problems? Do you? How can you possibly say that, there's, that it's possible for us to live in, a, in an abiding hope? I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to this week's Crosswalk. A moment ago, I asked the question, where would you even begin to look for hope in this world? Well, I have to admit, that's a bit of a trick question. As Pastor Clay explained in last week's message, there really isn't any reason to think there is hope to be found in this world. But that doesn't mean there isn't hope for this world. We're working our way through the book of 1 Peter right now in our series, Building on the Basics. One of the basics of following Christ is having a living hope. Last week, Pastor Clay showed us three places where we could find hope from 1 Peter chapter 1. Hope is found in the title you wear. Second idea was this, hope is found in the trophy that you are. And then the third idea we found where hope is found is that hope is found in the treasure you receive. This week, we'll see three more places where hope can be found. Maybe you're in desperate need of some hope today. We pray today's message gives us all a reminder of where real, lasting hope is found. Now here's Pastor Clay. If you were here last week, we kicked off uh, our study in First Peter, continuing our, our series. We're building on the basics, and this is the basic of, of hope and how to live in it. If you were here last week, I... Uh, It gave this pretty depressing uh, picture of the condition of the world that we are in uh, today and this new book that that, uh, has been written uh, talking about, you know, coming calamity and all this kind of stuff and and I said last week that that I don't know where everybody is on the hope meter uh, in here and that's true, Uh, I don't. Uh, But the question can be raised, where do we go to look for hope? Where do we find hope? Where do we find hope that's not just for a a season or not just for a a temporary period of time, but how do we live in it? How do we live in this continual abiding hope? Even as I I say that in my mind, I'm I'm thinking, how many people would would think that that's just a pipe dream? That you're out of your mind. Have you, have you been in the world lately? Have you, have you had the message? Do you struggle with finances? Do you have kid problems? Do you, that how can you possibly say that, there's, that it's possible for us to live in, a, in an abiding hope? Uh, after 30 years or so of walking with Jesus, I, I am thoroughly convinced that uh, it is absolutely possible. I, I don't believe that it's automatic. I don't think you, you come to Christ, you give your life to Christ, you get saved, and bam, that's it. You don't, you never have any more uh, struggles. You, you, you always, you're always full of hope. No, I, I know that's not true. I've, I've talked to enough of you and had my own struggles in my life and all that kind of stuff to know that it's, that, that, that it's, it's difficult in this world. But I absolutely believe that it's possible to abide, to live in 
hope. And I think uh, Peter thinks so uh, as well. Um, I was talking to somebody out in the hall, and and, uh, they said something about we're going to be looking at, uh, uh, I forget what, around what you said, cantankerous Peter, or if you know anything about the life of Peter, that stuff. And I said, you know, when you read First Peter, it doesn't really sound like that. It sounds like a guy that's, that's learned a thing or two. Do y'all want to learn a thing or two today? Listen, I, I, I love learning. I, I, I love learning. That's why part of why I enjoy sermon prep so much. Uh, I, I just love learning, and God teaches me when I'm in sermon prep for hours at a time. It just, it's a fascinating thing uh, to me, and I enjoy it. But uh, I always apply what I call, you know, some of y'all heard this with the so what principle. So what if I learn stuff if I can't apply stuff? So, so think about that in, in, in regards to your current context, whatever's going on. And like I said, I don't know where everybody is in here on the hope meter, right? Some of you could be in the midst of some unbelievable storm. Some of you, it could be just kind of smooth sailing right now. Light breeze and the winds, you know, in your face and the sun's at your back and everything's going well. Or some of you may be somewhere in between. You may, it, it, it's just life. It's just the stuff of life. So let's see what we can learn about hope and where to find it. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're looking for this idea of finding hope. And last week we started this. I'm going to read last week's first five verses and then briefly mention those three places. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to encourage you if, you, if you're interested in the message, go back. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that message. Uh, those first three areas where Peter seems to indicate where we can find hope in our lives. If you're here, wherever you are on the hope meter, you may be right now saying, oh, I'm so desperately in need of hope in my life. Or you may be at the other end and you're saying, hey, things are great. But like I said, I think I said last week, you know, if things are going great, Hold on, <laughs> right? It's, it's, only a matter of, it's only a matter of time. If, if you've lived as long as some of us have, you know it's only a matter of time before. First Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5, starting with this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living, say the word, hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wait, it gets better. Okay, so we started, last week we started with, the, with these three ideas. First one was this. Hope is found in the title you wear. Peter says, you're aliens, you're strangers, and, and that's something that we can embrace and say, hey, this is not my home. I'm here right now, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. We discussed that. But, but you can find hope in the very idea that, that, that you wear the title of foreigner, in a sense, in this world. Stranger. 
alien. Second idea was this. Hope is found in the trophy that you are. And we discussed that idea that God has redeemed. It's not a work you did yourself. You didn't earn God's salvation. You couldn't work for your salvation. It's none of this. That God, God has redeemed you. You are his trophy of grace. And you should be extremely proud of that fact. That God has done this thing. And then the third idea we found where hope is found is that hope is found in the treasure you receive. In verses 4 and 5, he talks about this eternal aspect of this. And, and, and as a result of this life in Christ and this e- the eternal aspect versus the temporary. Peter, throughout this chapter, and you'll see it again today, is constantly comparing the eternal with the temporal. The eternal with the temporal. The eternal with the temporal. He's constantly doing that, uh, at least in this opening chapter. And the reason is, he's, he's, it's like he's saying, hello, Nick Fly. It's not about the temporal. You can tell he's, he's, he's trying to drive that home to us again and again. So, uh, hope is found in the title you wear, the trophy you are, and the treasure that you receive. Let's jump into the fourth one, which is the first new one this morning. And it is this. Hope is found in the trials you face. Verse 6. Look what he says. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed... By various trials. Hope is found in the trials you face. Well, come on. Now y'all know I've lost it, right? Hope is found in the trials I face. Are you bunkers? My trials are the very thing that is stealing my hope. Now you're telling me that I can actually find hope in my trials? Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that there's actually some purpose or reason that there could be for my trials? I think that's exactly what Peter is saying. He he refers back to verse 4 and 5, right? He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Meaning, referring back to what he just said in in verse 4 and 5, that you greatly rejoice in the fact that uh, there's this treasure for you, that there's this eternal value that, that you're building up for yourself in heaven because of this relationship with Jesus Christ, right? It's a, it's a statement of fact. He says that you can greatly rejoice in this. But that's not all he says. Look what else he says there in that, in that lower part of verse 6. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. If necessary? If necessary? Why would it possibly be necessary for me to have to go through trials? I believe from, from God's perspective, we could look at at least two reasons this morning why trials would be necessary for your life. Okay, you ready? Here's the first one. First one is discipline. Now listen to me. Everybody, I know you're right. Some of you are writing, taking notes. Are you looking up at me? Listen to me. Be very careful with this one. Treat this one very carefully. Don't make the mistake that Job's buddies made. Do you remember the story, the Old Testament story, the book of Job? All this calamity, all this tribulation, all these hard times came on Job and Job's friends. They came and they ministered to him and they sat there with him. I'm telling you, it was great for the first four or five days. And they loved on him and, and they cried with him and all that stuff. But then as they looked at Job, they looked at his life and looked at all this stuff that happened in his life. And they started saying, come on, Job, come on. Give it up. You've done something. You have ticked God off. You've made him mad. You've gone into sin somewhere. Come on. God's disciplining you. You, you need, Listen, that's where they went, right? Listen to me. That was not the case with Job. But 
That does not mean that God will not use discipline in one of his child's life if it is necessary. Recently, not too long ago, Cindy and I had dinner with our oldest son, J.C., and his wife, Candy, and uh, their son, our grandson, uh, Jesse. And as we left the restaurant, backing out of the parking uh, spot, and I just began to pull forward, and this little kid, maybe two or three years old, comes darting out, I mean, right in front of my Jeep. And uh, fortunately, I, was just, I, mean, I wasn't going very fast, and I was able to slam on the brakes and stop. And, uh, you know, that'll make your heart skip a beat when you see that, that kind of thing. Well, that boy's father came running out after him, and um, let's just say they had a come-to-Jesus meeting right there in the parking lot. You know what I'm saying? He wore that boy's behind out. Why? Because he didn't like that little boy? No, because he loved that little boy. And because he knew that, he knew what that little boy didn't know, that there was danger that he was running into, and, and he's just oblivious. He's just going through life. He's just doing his thing. He's just, you know, kuna matata, whatever. He's having a good time. And a loving father picks him up and disciplines that child. Why would we not think that God would do the exact same thing for his children when he sees them heading in a direction that is contrary to their best interest, contrary to what he knows will in the, ultimately or even immediately be best for their life? Why would, we, why would we not think or why would we say, God is so mean, he let this happen in my life? Again, you can't automatically assume this one for yourself and especially not for other people, but... Adversity in your life, trials, is an opportunity just to honestly evaluate. I mean, and that's all I'm saying. Just honestly evaluate my own life and look and see, man, is there anything in my life that would, uh, that's there that God would not desire to be there? It, it could be lack of interest in his kingdom. It could be uh, some sinful practice. It could be, it could be a lot of things. But not, it's, not, it's nobody else's business to evaluate that. But, but for you to step back and just look at your life and say, God, is there anything in my life? Are you, is there some reason that you're having to discipline me? If so, please help me to see it. Because I don't, I don't like discipline, God. And, and, I, and I don't want to be in, 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 out of your will. So discipline may be a reason that trials come into your life. And you can find hope in the very fact that God would love you enough to actually discipline you. If, as Peter says, necessary. The second reason that, uh, from God's perspective, that trials may come into your life is development. Listen, listen, God is always, 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 did I say always enough? God is always trying to develop Christ-like character in every single one of us. Always. And, hang on, like it or not, and we, and not, (laughs) but here's the truth. The crucible of pain is where Christ-like character is gained. That's it, folks. I'm telling you, it is through the crucible, through, through, this, through, through the act, through the pain that you experience in your life, that's where Christ-like character is gained in your life. Come on. But I hate it. I don't want it. I don't want this in my life. It hurts. Listen, I know. I know. And more importantly, God knows. God knows about your pain. God knows about your tribulation and your trials. God knows about 
your hurts. And I don't think it would be theologically incorrect to say this, that God hurts with your hurt. In John chapter 11, there's this, this, there's this fantastic story of uh, uh, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus is sick, okay? And Jesus is a friend of the family. If you're not familiar with the story, Jesus is a friend of the family. Lazarus gets sick. Mary and Martha send for Jesus uh, wherever he is. And they said, come. Why? Because they, man, they're, they're, they're believers. They're, they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus can make the difference. This is life and death matter. Their brother, is, is, he's in bad shape. And they know if Jesus comes, he can heal him. They know Jesus can, can accomplish this work. And they're, and they're get, go get Jesus. And Jesus doesn't show up. You know the story? Jesus doesn't show up. And John tells us Jesus intentionally didn't show up. And Lazarus dies. And when Jesus finally does show up, Mary and Martha, listen, listen to me, Mary and Martha, with, with tears streaming down their faces for the pain that they were feeling at their loss and the confusion at wondering why in the world Jesus wouldn't have done anything. Both of them say to, him, say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. It's a very emotionally powerful scene. And in verse 33, it says this. It says, he was deeply moved, he being Jesus, was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And then in verse 35, a lot of you know it, verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, let me ask you this. Did he weep for the loss of Lazarus? No. No, Jesus knew full and well he's about to raise Lazarus from dead. He had already declared that, by the way, before he even went. He says, no, I'm going to let him die so I can bring him back to life. <laughs> That's basically what he said. No, Jesus knew he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus wept over the pain that Mary and Martha were experiencing in their life in that particular moment. Even though Jesus knew it was temporary, he... He felt their hurt. He knew their pain. God is not oblivious to your pain. Don't listen to me. Do not buy the devil's lie that says God doesn't care. God cares more about your life than you and I will possibly ever comprehend. Do you hear me? He cares more about you. He loves you more deeply than you and I will ever be able to comprehend. So, a temporary trial will produce an eternal triumph. That's what it's, it's, it's developing this Christ-like character in you that, that surpasses this temporary stuff, right? We talked about that last week. It'll come up again. But it has eternal worth, eternal value to it. So, like a heavenly father, why would he not put us through a trial if it will produce in us Christ-like character that has eternal forever value to it? D- do you understand? You can find hope in the trials that you face. There's this uh, story came across a long time ago about this little boy who was complaining to his grandmother about, you know, what a hard day he had had and how rough things were and all that kind of stuff and things just hadn't been going good in his life. And, uh, and she was in the kitchen and she was working on some stuff. And so she asked her grandson if he would like a, a snack. And of course, uh, he did. She was in the process of baking a cake. And, and so she, she took a, a thing of... of uh, oil, cooking oil, and said, here, take this. And he's like, ugh, yuck. And she, so she says, well, how, how about a couple of raw eggs? And Grandma, oh, okay, how about, some, how about a, at least a pinch of baking soda? Grandma, those things are awful. Those things are nasty. Of course, Grandma says, yes. By themselves, they, 
they wouldn't taste good at all. But when they come together, when a person knows what they're doing, puts them together, puts them into the heat, it produces a delicious cake, something of, right? You get it, right? Doesn't God do the same thing? Doesn't God, you know, was like, oh, why this or why that or that? But this, this is the promise we have in God's word, that he has purposes and plans that you and I can't even possibly imagine. He's putting things together that you and I can't even possibly imagine in our lives. You know this verse probably, but look at it, Romans uh, chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Right? Do you know, is, that, is that true or is that not true? Or do we need to change that? Do we need to change the Bible? And we know that God causes e- everything that's nice to work together for our good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. For momentary light affliction, trials, tribulations, hardships, difficulties, whatever. For light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, that's, that's important, Peter brings that up, doesn't he? But at the things which are not seen. What's he talking about? Earthly, what I can see. Eternal, what I, what I can't see. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are, say it, temporal. The things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen, we may not like them. We may not enjoy them, but we can actually take hope in our trials because it shows that God loves us, that God disciplines us when we need it, and he is developing, seeking to develop Christ-like character in us through the trials. Okay, next place we find hope this morning. Hope is found in the task that you have. Verse 7 says this, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right there, there it is. We see, we see the twofold result, if you will, of the trials that we go through. We are, uh, we are developed, we are grown. That's a developed thing that I was talking about just a second ago. Our faith, which Peter says is more precious than gold, it is purified through our trials, and our God is what? Glorified. Through our trials, God is glorified. And so you can take hope in the task that you have. And your task, ladies and gentlemen, is singular. It is to bring glory to God. Through your life. And that, listen, that doesn't mean, oh, I need to go join a monastery. I need to wear one of them robes. I don't look good in those at all. No. I mean, yes, if God tells you to do that, but, but no, no, you bring glory to God through living your life in a way that honors God, in a way that, that, that God would desire for you to live your life. And through, by the way, by the way, that's why people are, are so mystified when they see you in your life, when you, when you get it right, when, when we get it right and we actually try and live our life through the trials and say, God, I want to glorify you, I want to honor you. I don't like this, this is painful, this is, but God, you have purposes, you have plans, maybe you're developing me and God, uh, I just want you to be glorified through this. That's why people look at you and, and they think, how, how can he have hope? How can she be so calm and at peace in, in, this, in this tribulation or at least trouble that's going on in in their life. I don't get it. Where do they get that from? It's in the task 
that we have to bring glory to God. Uh, I think it's been a number of years, and I told the story about uh, Dr. James Dobson, and some of you know him. He, I think he's basically retired now or semi-retired, but Dr. Dobson uh, was kind of a leading proponent of, of uh, the family and Christian ideals for the family and had a syndicated radio program. Millions of people read his books and watched his radio program and stuff. And uh, in, in uh, a broadcast, I heard him talking one time about uh, his uh, grandfather on his mother's uh, side, <clears throat> Uh, who was a great man, he was a farmer by profession, great guy, he was a big guy, uh, he was strong, he was, you know, healthy, uh, he, was, he was honest, he was hardworking, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Uh, he didn't have any problem with people that were, in fact, his wife was a believer, and she went to church every Sunday, his children, they went to church every Sunday, he had no problem with that, it just wasn't his deal, he wasn't into it, 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 it just wasn't something he was interested in. He was a farmer, and he's hardworking, and that's what he was going to do. But a funny thing happens when you get sick. Uh, and he got sick. In fact, he, he was on his deathbed. He was uh, dying. And the gospel had been presented to him many times before, but, uh, but once more, I, I believe it's the pastor came and visited him at home. And in those days, most people, they were sick. They, were, they stayed at home until they passed away. And at home, uh, the pastor came and visited him. And, and in a time when, when apparently it was fairly obvious that he probably was not going to get better, uh, his, his heart uh, was open, his spirit was open, and he received the gospel this time with, with a heart that was open, and he received Christ as his personal Savior. He was saved, and, and, and there was great rejoicing in the family, and it was a wonderful occasion, and everybody was so glad that, you know, that the member of the family was, was, was going to go to heaven. And I can't remember, but it was either that same night or the next, the next night, um, Dr. Dobson's grandmother, uh, out in the kitchen or something, she heard her husband in the bedroom and heard him uh, weeping, sobbing, just almost uncontrollably. And obviously she assumed that he was in some sort of pain, and she went running in, and, and she said, what, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And uh, as Dr. Dobson tells us, he's just laying there, he's staring up the ceiling, and, and tears are just, are just rolling down his face. And all he can say is, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. My whole life, I could have been doing something for God. My whole life, I could have been investing in what God wanted me to do, and I've wasted it. Now listen to me. He was an honest man. He, was, uh, he had fed through his, through his farm production who knows how many countless numbers of people. He raised a family. He, he was, by the world's standards, although not rich, but by the world's standards, they would look at that and they'd say, that guy's had a successful life. He's had a fruitful life. And yet doc, Dr. Dobson told the story that his grandfather learned a truth on his deathbed that you and I have the opportunity to learn right here today while there's still time. And that is that any life lived for anything other than the glory and purposes of God is a life wasted. Listen to me. Listen to me. The greatest athlete in the world, the most famous actor or actress, the wealthiest CEO in the RTP, their life is a waste compared to the person, the man or the woman who lives their life to glorify God. Whether it is in your workplace, whether it is a mother at home raising her children, whether it is a student at school, no matter where it is, that the purposes and plans that, that God has for us are to bring him honor and glory. Uh, I came across this great quote, uh, a guy, I think his name Mike Healy is the guy's name. Uh, he was a performer in a uh, circus sideshow. And the, the circus sideshow was performing in St. Louis, and uh, a, a local paper, the Riverfront Times, did an interview with, uh, with Mr. Healy. And in the interview, 
This is a great quote. One of the great quotes I've, I've ever come across. This is a great quote. Here's what Mr. Healy, here's what he said. He said, when you find yourself eating light bulbs for a living, you know you've made some bad career moves. You think? Listen. And I, 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 like I said, I don't, I don't know all of you. I don't know all your situations. I don't know all that. But I don't, care. I don't care what your career is or isn't. I don't care where you're upwardly mobile or, or, or feel like you're being pushed down. I don't care whether you think you've been successful or unsuccessful. I don't care whether you think that, that, that you're making enough or not making enough. I don't care at all about your career in that respect. I care that you discover what your purpose is in life, regardless of your career. Now listen to me. When you get up in the morning and you go to work, if you go to work with the idea, if you, if you, as, in your time with the Lord before you go, and I'm sure you all have that time with the Lord before you go out to work, if you have that time with the Lord, and in that, in that process, in that time with the Lord in the morning, if you say, Father God, today help me to fulfill my purpose. I got a whole bunch of stuff that the company wants done, or I got a whole bunch of stuff on my to-do list, or I, a bunch of, I got to travel here, I got to do the, God, I got a bunch of stuff I got to do. But God, that's not my purpose. That, that's my job, that's my career, that's my work, and I ought to do that to the very best of my ability. But God, my purpose today is to glorify you. So God, as I go to work today, will you help me to glorify you in all that I say, in all that I do? And you go out the door, listen, I'm telling you, it will revolutionize the way you look at your job, your career, your occupation, because your purpose is to glorify God. Listen, if you're in high school or in college, could I just challenge you with this? Because I know it's about, it's about in high school, or at least by high school, you, better, you start thinking these thoughts. But if you're in high school, if you're in college, uh, if you're somewhere in that planning stages or whatever, could I just challenge you to, to instead of thinking, well, I, I wonder, wonder what I should do for a career, or I wonder what will bring me the most money, can I just challenge you to, to say, God, what would you have me do with the rest of my life that will bring you the greatest glory? Because I'm telling you, I wish, I wish that had gotten through to me when I was in high school. I wish somebody had, I don't care what your job is, I don't care what your career is, your purpose is the same, exactly the same as mine, and it is to bring glory to God in our lives. Okay, real quickly, um, I know I've got to run through this real quick. Let's go to the last one. Hope is found in the transformation that you experience. Now listen, there, there's... There's way too much in there probably to, to do any of it justice, uh, but we're going to take a stab at it here real quick. Uh, hope is found in the transformation that you experience. We're going to start in verse uh, 8 through 13, and it's looking at the first thing, which is a transformed perspective. A transformed perspective. In verse 8 it says, uh, And though you have not seen him, you haven't seen him, not with physical eyes, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches, inquiries. Listen, they wanted to know, when, when is all this, this going to come down? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In other words, the, the Old Testament prophets predicted this, this was going to happen. Christ was going to come. He was going to pay for our sins. It was revealed to them, to those Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves. In other words, it probably it wasn't, they were believers, they were going to be, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to transpire in their lifetime. They weren't serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Isn't that an amazing thing? Therefore, prepare your minds 
for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a transformed perspective. Peter starts and he says, even though you haven't seen him. So I don't think there's anybody in here that would say, yep, I've seen God with my physical eyes. There probably are some people that would say that, but I don't think anybody in here would say that. I think most of us would say, no, I've never seen God with my physical eyes. And Peter says, but yet you believe in him. So not only do you believe in him, you actually love him. What is that called? Faith. That's faith. So now you see what you did not see before, correct? You don't see it with your physical eyes, but now you see it through eyes of faith. Your perspective has totally changed now. Now you don't see things necessarily. I mean, I know we do see things through physical eyes. I, I see this table. I, I see my Bible here. I see my cup of coffee. I, I physically see it. But, but that's not how I see my world. Ultimately, I have a different perspective now. Now I see things from God's perspective. Now I see things in the way that God would have me to, to see them. Does that, you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? The perspective changes as a result of this, this faith that I now have in God. It's a new perspective. And not only is it a new perspective, but he also says that there's a transformed practice as well. Yeah, my perspective changes. I, I don't see things the way other people see them, and that's true. Listen, that's going to affect your life, I'm telling you. It's going to affect what you, how you view different positions in the world or, or different political hot buttons or, or candidates or uh, work ethic uh, expectations, all that kind of stuff. Your perspective is now from God's perspective. And there's a transformed practice. Look at what he says in verse 14. As, watch this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, the former lusts, the former uh, sins, the former all that stuff, which were yours in your, say that next word, ignorance. He's not insulting you, by the way. He's just saying, in some sense, there may be some aspects that a person may not understand their sin, although I don't think that's always the case, but, but ignorant of how to not be any different, ignorant of the fact that you don't have to be this way in your life. But, watch this, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Notice he refers to it as that temporal thing he's throwing in there again. You're only here for a little while. You're not going to be here long. But this is one of those places in the Bible, and there are a lot of them, but this is one of those places in the Bible where the clear teaching is that if you come to Christ, everything changes. Everything about your life changes, including your moral values, your conduct, the way you act at school, at, at work, at church, at, uh, where, uh, the, inside the home. Everything should change as a result of it. Uh, you, you have a new practice in your life. You don't act the way you used to act. Uh, I, I think I kind of said it like, like this. Faith equals follow. In other words, if, if my faith is authentic, if it's genuine, I will follow Jesus Christ and what he desires for me to do. Here's another, here's another way that I put it. We not only believe in him, but we behave like him. Now, if you bristle at that, if you say, well, come on now, I can't act like God. Nobody knows better than I do 
that coming to Christ does not mean sinless perfection. Nobody knows better than I do that, that we will not be perfect to get it right all the time. But look at what Peter says. Maybe I read it too fast. Look at it again. Look what he says. But like the Holy One who called you. Who is that? Who's the Holy One? Knows the capital letters? God. But like the Holy One who called you, be, be holy yourselves. Like Him, you be like this. Also, in all your behavior, 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 because it is written, and Peter's quoting uh, Leviticus chapter 11, chapter 19, chapter 20, all, all here. This is God speaking. You shall be holy, for I am holy. We not only believe in him, we behave like him. I know we're not perfect. I, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you're going to become a god. No, what he's saying, you, if you believe in him, if you want to follow him, then you ought to act like that. ought to be a family resemblance. If you call him father, notice how Peter says that, the one who's going to judge impartially, then you ought to, you ought to behave like him. Listen, it, it, it's, it's a transformed practice in my life. Again, let me say it. I know none of us are perfect. I know none of us get it right all the time. But there should be this desire to be Different, to be transformed. So that the things that maybe I used to give into, I, I don't necessarily anymore. Do you see what, that's what he's saying here. It's a transformed practice. It's such a, it's such a liberating thing when you suddenly realize, hey, I don't, I don't have to lust. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be jealous. I don't have to be uh, greedy. I don't have to be these things. No, we're not going to be perfect. Yes, we'll still be tempted. But I no longer have to be a slave to my sin nature. That's what he's saying. That I actually can have a transformed practice. My life can be different. And that's what people notice. They may not agree with you. They may not like it. But, but they can't help but notice the transformation that's taking place. And then one more real quickly. Uh, there is a transformed priority. This, this transformation you experience, this transformed priority. In verse uh, 18, he says... Uh, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with, uh, from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that since you have... Uh, ho- your faith and hope are in God. And since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been, say it, born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God for all flesh. Here he goes again with the temporal versus the eternal. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. It is, uh, it is this transformation that's taken place in us that changes us. And part of that transformation is a realization of who we are in Christ Jesus and that we're no longer uh, the same as a result of this knowledge that we have that God is transforming us. Peter says, silver and gold, you were redeemed, but it wasn't with anything so, so temporal, so unvaluable as silver and gold. Oh no, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That'll transform you. 
That'll transform you. Just knowing that you, that you, you have this, this blood of Christ that has redeemed you and made you this, this new person and who he is. Listen, I know we gotta, we gotta go. <clears throat> but I, I said earlier that all through this thing, we're getting this picture of eternal versus temporal, eternal versus temporal. And Peter seems to be, be really driving this home again and again and again. Part of the reason he does, obviously he's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but part of the reason he does is because that's really the story from Genesis to Revelation. There's always this comparison between the eternal and the temporal, the eternal and the temporal, and each of us having to make a decision at which we're going to invest our lives in, the eternal or the temporal. And so he holds up the, the eternal and he says, man, this, this, is the, this is what you ought to go for, this is what you ought to shoot for, this is what you ought to be aspiring to in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and then he points to the other and he says, this is passing away, it's destined for dust, it's not going to become of anything. Do you know that Jesus essentially said the same thing? He said it a lot of different places, but in John chapter 14, he says this, do not let your heart be troubled. He's talking about trials, tribulations. Heartaches, all that stuff. Do not let your heart be troubled. You have put your trust in God. Put your trust in me also. Here we go. Here's the eternal. There are many rooms in my father's house. Hey, if it, if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to make a place for you. And after I go and make a place for you, I will come back. I will come back and take you with me. Then you may be where I am. And you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to get there? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes from the Father except by me. Ladies and gentlemen, that ought to move the needle on your hope meter. Well, we certainly hope that today's message has given you some hope. Peter was writing to a group of believers struggling to find hope in their trials and circumstances. Peter reminded them, and us, that hope isn't found in our possessions. It isn't found in money or fame or health or anything like that. Hope isn't found at all in this world. Hope is found in the God who loves us enough to die for us. He has given us a new purpose, and He's transforming us even through our circumstances. The truth is, we have a great reason to hope. And that's because we have a great God to hope in. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback form from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable to every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship 
We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. Cross Culture Church. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where you'll find what you're searching for. Cross Culture Church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.